<laughs> my, my one luxury item, I'll just take a nanosense. <laughs> You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello and welcome back to The Cosmic Cast, brought to you by the Earth and Solar System team at the University of Manchester. I'm John Penny Fisher and as per usual, I'm joined by Marissa Lowe. Hello. And Tom Harvey. Hello. And this week, all the way down in Milton Keynes, I'm joined by Tara Hayden. Hi. And Tom Barrett. Hi. How's it going? Going okay. Yeah, it's good, thanks. How about you guys? Not too bad. How's lockdown going for you guys? I mean, the sun's shining, so... (laughs) That's very positive. Yeah, it's, it's as good as it can be. You know, can't complain. But when you're not sat at home, normally, I guess, you're both very uh, much lab-based people, aren't you? Yeah, we both uh, are lab-based, look at our rocks uh, in the lab in different laboratories. Mm-hmm. So yep. you, do you both work on lunar projects? Uh, I work on lunar projects. I work on lunar meteorites. Uh, so I look at uh, volatile elements in lunar meteorites, mm-hmm. these being water, um, chlorine, uh, carbon, etc., and I do almost exactly the same thing, but on a different group of space rocks. Um, so these are fragments of uh, asteroids, which we think can potentially open up uh, early solar system processes. So chondrites mostly, was it you're working on? Um... Uh, basaltic uh, asteroids, actually. So they're igneous. From, um, so they're the differentiated meteorites that have, have undergone that. Um, almost protoplanet formation rather than um, the just condensed blobs. That That's cool. So are we talking about some of the more oddball meteorite classes that are out there then? Uh, they're the um, HEDs. Oh, the HEDs. Howardite, Eucrite, Diogenite meteorites. Yeah. Um, specifically the Eucrites, which are the basaltic crust of mm-hmm. what is believed to be the asteroid 4 Vesta in the main belt. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. Uh, so, Tara, you're uh, in your second year of your PhD now. I am, yes. Uh, and then, Tom, you're a postdoc at the OU. Um, why are you both looking at volatile elements then? Uh, so, I look at the volatile elements in the moon so I can understand perhaps when uh, water was introduced to the Earth and the moon because these two bodies are quite linked, we think. Uh, so, to look at the water and the, the various... Um, the how much of it there is and actually it's characteristic so it's it's isotopes the different versions of um the element that there is um can tell us also about the different processes that have happened on both of these bodies Mm -hmm. and again tara's given a wonderful explanation already um i do again the same kind of um hydrogen isotopes looking at the sources and the delivery mechanisms and the processes which may alter this isotope composition but for these asteroids which are some of the earliest forming igneous rocks in the solar system so this rather than talking about say how the the earth moon system may have formed and evolved this is how the early inner solar system may have formed evolved and gained its water mm-hmm. so my work informs tara's and then it, she takes it on and um, extrapolates for the moon. So it all works all together in our solar yeah. system. <laughs> I, I suppose <laughs> they complement each other. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I suppose this story of uh, volatiles, particularly on the moon, it, it's come a huge way over the past like sort of 10 years or so. I guess we normally think of the moon as being quite a dry body. So, how... yeah, so up until about 10 or so, 10, 12 years ago, we actually thought that the moon had almost no water. Um, and that was because when uh, the when NASA went to the moon in the 1960s and 1970s, the rocks that they were that were returned and studied then didn't actually detect very much water in them. But actually, as time has gone on, mm. um, our analytical procedure has got better, so we've got much more high precision uh, equipment we can use now. And actually, about 12 years ago, Alberto Sal uh, and others discovered quite significant amounts of water in. Uh, volcanic glass beads that come from uh, the surface of the moon that were collected during the Apollo, I think it was 14 missions, but I might be wrong, um, that uh, were erupted during fire fountain eruptions uh, to the moon's surface. So uh, the fact that those were present in those material meant that uh, we went and studied almost all of the Apollo material or quite a lot of it uh, to try and understand actually what we studied when we originally got this material back. Is that actually a different story that we've just not been able to see before? And actually we found quite significant amounts of water in this material. Um, and I'm taking that a bit further um, by looking at lunar meteorites uh, mm. because these can maybe come from elsewhere on the moon's surface. So mm. the Apollo material comes from the near side, the side that we can see, but lunar meteorites are far more likely to come from the far side of the moon so the side that we cannot see because it always faces away from the earth uh, as it rotates around us so um i want to see if what we've recorded in the apollo material is actually representative of the whole moon mm -hmm. when we're talking about water it's still quite low abundance isn't it well how, how much water do you you find in some of these lunar meteorites it's a couple of hundred parts per million so not this, not sort of what we'd expect to be water, and it's always locked up, almost always locked up in uh, minerals mm -hmm. or within um, little uh, pockets of minerals that have mm -hmm. been trapped in a growing mineral as well. So this is reflecting effectively water that's being brought up from the interior of the moon. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's the same picture then for for some of these HED Vestan samples. Yep the the range is down to like. 10 parts per million to about a thousand is the, the kind of highest or a couple of thousand is the highest I've seen for um, Vesta. Uh, fun factor, the people talk about bone dry, but actually bones contain about 10 weight percent water, which is uh, <laughs> significantly more than I see in my samples. So um, yeah, the, these are, these are still dry, but it's, a lot wetter than people would have initially thought. They're not anhydrous. Yeah, because I guess am I right in thinking some of the initial estimates for the water on the moon was more in the sort of parts per billion range rather than parts per million? Well, yeah, it was, it was parts per billion. So, so little hmm. water we thought was actually present. And we attributed that to this cataclysmic giant impact to mm. have formed the moon. Um, and all of our work that's going on now is trying to inform that and try and get a better understanding of whether that's what happened. Mm. Uh, now that we've got more data on, there actually is more water than we thought in the moon. Obviously, still mm. not a lot, still not what we see on Earth, but still quite a bit. 
So what, what changed in the analytical process there? Was it, was it just like detection limits on instruments or are we using new techniques now? I think we're, we're using, uh, we've developed the techniques that we used back then even more. Uh, so we've just got better, uh, higher precision and um, yeah, as you say, higher detection limits. Yeah, I, th I think it's the advent of um, SIMS, the secondary ion mass spectrometry that really took off the kind of uh, working at low abundance um, kind of sample analysis. Mm -hmm. um, the nanosims are typically used in biology, I think. And then there's a, a few universities now in Manchester and um, the Open University included that have um, nanosims that are now dedicated more for the kind of geological sciences where yeah. uh, you have such precious samples. Like if I'm talking about a, a fragment of meteorite that's kind of smaller than the uh, kind of circle I'm making there, or even more important, like the Apollo samples where we've sent someone to the moon to pick them back up. Mm. You want to make sure you're getting as much data out of that, especially for destructive analyses as possible. So um, Cause, cause we're now... Sorry, it's in situ, isn't it? Yes. So um, you can actually um, take a five micron or 10 micron kind of square and um, you blast it with a beam of um, ions, so positively charged or negatively charged particles. And it's the secondary ions, these charged particles that basically get blasted out of your rock that are then um, sent around the, the, the mass spectrometer um, and measured. So um, getting that kind of high spatial resolution, so being able to focus down to such small kind of areas with such high precision has only been, yeah, in the last 20 or so years. And then people are now looking at it more for these kind of precious samples where um, such as like Hayabusa, like dust grains and things where there's only a, a couple of thousand of these really tiny particles. Everyone needs to be analysed as kind of thoroughly as possible before you then destroy it. So making sure you can get as much out of it as possible. Um, so what minerals or parts of your samples are you looking at in particular? So both of us look at the mineral appetite. And this is quite a late forming mineral in a, a magma's uh, evolution. It forms after about 95% of the magma is crystallized. So it's very, very late. Um, and, but it, especially on the moon, and I think also in Vestin samples, is um, the main, uh, it's the main store of these volatile elements because it uh, takes uh, elements such as hydroxyl, such as chlorine, such as fluorine into its mineral structure. So it gets locked up in its, uh, its excite. Um, and that means that uh, that's where we focused a lot of our work on trying to study appetites, even though, as I found, they're quite, they're quite rare. So they're quite hard to find in your samples. Yeah, uh, so hydroxyapatite as well, the, the uh, apatite, the calcium phosphate, which has uh, OH, the hydroxyl attached, is actually the same thing that makes up your teeth enamel and your bones. So again, the bone dry analogy is quite nice here because it's an appetite that's like orders of magnitude more water than what we both look at. And we, we also look at, um, or we want to look at if we can find them, these little pockets of melt that have formed uh, within other minerals such as uh, olivine and such as uh, pyroxene that as they've grown little pockets of the uh, very early melt has been trapped within them and then um, 
become solid. Uh, so, and they're absolutely tiny. So having the nanosims to be able to look at that tiny sub-millimeter scale uh, sort of feature uh, is really good because these melting inclusions can represent very, very early stage in comparison to the late stage appetite uh, yeah. contents and uh, characteristics uh, in terms of the volatiles uh, of the magma. So we can get an understanding if you have both of those phases of the evolution of this magma in terms yeah. of its volatile contents and characteristics and perhaps what processes it's undergone. Yeah. And what's interesting as well is uh, we've talked about how the analytical techniques developed over time and the kind of detection limits improved. We're now getting to the point where you can actually start making reasonable measurements of, say, water in what would consider uh, would normally be considered a nominally anhydrous minerals such as the main rock forming minerals uh, olivine and, and plagioclase and um, pyroxene uh, with actually some decent level of precision so i would envisage in the future as the techniques continue to improve you'd start seeing measurements in these samples where uh, water is not considered uh, like typical for its crystal structure it's a very trace very um incompatible element that doesn't want to be in kind of the olivine or the magic eyes um, but it's still there because it's been sucked up mm -hmm. um, and that can again inform uh, other sort of processes that the appetite which kind of contains it naturally wants to be in the kind of crystal structure um, may not show. Mm. I guess all this together then is just sort of working towards building a picture of how water behaves in a magma as it crystallizes so that you can then use the information to then backtrack what the original water content inside the moon would be. Was that a, a good assessment of it? Or? Yeah, exactly. So to get an understanding of how it's developed over time so we can understand these processes and back calculate perhaps what the uh, indigenous lunar um, composition and also contents were and perhaps maybe what the, the sources of lunar and uh, terrestrial water might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was going to ask, we touched on before, um, you mentioned how water would have been delivered to these different bodies. Um, how, how is water introduced to a body? Um, I'm sure there's lots of different answers, but... <laughs> well, there's uh, meteorite impacts, because obviously uh, meteorites from other bodies in the solar system might contain more water, so uh, introducing them to especially molten bodies in the very early stages of planetary uh, evolution uh, could be a major source of water or comets for that matter from the, I think they're from the Oort cloud. I might be wrong. I think they're from the Oort cloud. So quite outer solar system and into the inner solar system is perhaps where our waters come from. That's what we're trying to study and trying to understand. I think um, carbonaceous chondrites also might are a major, what we think to be a major source of, um, especially lunar water, I think might be also for Vesta. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, it's typically considered um, that, yeah, you have delivery from some sort of water rich um, other yeah, meteorite that would have impacted onto uh, the body. Um, these are typically considered to be carbonaceous chondrites. So these are a more rare form of chondrite, which uh, contains more kind of um, volatile elements such as carbon, hence the name. Uh, and some of them have like organic compounds and things in as well. Um, but they're quite water rich. 
um, in the kind of weight percent level. But, uh, one weight percent is 10,000 parts per million as a, a reference for when we were talking about PPM before. Um, so these contain significantly more water than what we're detecting normally, and these would have impacted into the body. There's also um, new models that have shown that you can actually absorb water onto the kind of crystal surface of early forming olivine grains, which, because um, previously it was considered uh, the inner solar system is too hot to have water, hence you have the, the snow line where beyond this point it is now cool enough for water to condense out into snow or ice. Um, but recent modeling has shown that you can still actually contain uh, several oceans worth of water inside the solar system um, actually absorbed to the surfaces of this grain, um, even when it would normally be too hot. Um, so there, there, there could actually be uh, native water to these um, planets and then the chondrites and um, a small amount of cometry input would also have then been added afterwards. Uh -huh. um, and it's the ratio of the isotopes of, of hydrogen so um, you're the typical hydrogen everyone thinks of and then deuterium which has um, is heavier um, that um, can give an indication of the the source of water or where and um, what processes that water may have um, experienced so comets have a very high um, dh ratio uh, hydrogen isotope ratio so they have a lot of heavy water heavy hydrogen in them um, and actually, if you add lots of comets to the Earth, the Earth would not have the isotope signature we see. So we have to kind of say it's got to be, you know, only a few percent comet and the rest of it has to come from somewhere else. And that's, again, some of the work that we've been looking at and other groups have been doing a lot of work on. Yeah. So is, is there, um, so I guess using this sort of method then of isotopes to fingerprint where this water's come from, is, is there a lot of data out there on comets and, and other sort of bodies, or, or is that still a bit of an unknown in terms of what the different compositions of the reservoirs are out there? I think that's what a lot of us are working on right now. We're working on different materials. So I work on lunar material. Mm -hmm. A number of people that I know work on lunar material. Obviously Tom works on um, asteroid for Vesta material. Uh, people work on Martian meteorites as well. Uh, so we're trying to piece together for the entire solar system um, what the different stories is for these different bodies and whether we can get a story that works for all of them. That's a process that, or a series of processes that have happened that have produced the isotopic composition we see for the Earth and for the Moon and mm -hmm. for Mars uh, and so on. Uh, so it's all of us trying to work together to uh, piece yeah. together the, the history yeah. of the solar system, basically. That's cool. So does, does, do some of the isotopic ratios then between Vesta and the Moon look quite similar? Is it looking as if it's a similar sort of a water source? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if I um, can add to what Tara is saying as well, like the uh, cometry measurements are all done via like telescope observation rather than actual like direct right. sample analysis. So there, it's uh, whilst the number is you know still comparable, you're still getting a, a, an isotope ratio. You you have to take into account the way it was analysed is different, and it's yeah. also collecting the uh, value from the the cometry coma rather than the actual body itself. So there could be processes. You know you're you're subliming this water off the comet 
to form the coma has that changed its isotope composition probably mm-hmm. yeah and um so there's other things we uh, a, a mission to directly sample a comet like if rosetta could have come home with sample you know that would have been beautiful um but everyone else yeah so mars chondrites um the moon um vesta all have direct samples that we can analyze in our lab which makes yeah. it much easier to um quite precisely say uh, we have these values and it means this and yes uh, from what we are seeing uh, both the earth moon mars and vesta all have a isotope signature that is quite similar to carbonaceous chondrites which leads quite nicely into the story of these chondrites being water rich coming early into the solar system because the HEDs formed so early um, they're within the first five to 20 million years mm-hmm. of the solar system forming you had Vesta appear and you know differentiate form a like a basaltic crust and have water delivered in that period. Tom I was going to ask you said you work on a group of meteorites called the HEDs would mm-hmm. you mind talking us through a bit more detail about what that group of meteorites is like? Okay, yeah. so it, um, the HEDs, as I mentioned earlier, the Howardite, Eucrite, Diogenite meteorites, this is the um, largest group of um, basaltic achondrites um, that we have in our meteorite collection. Uh, an achondrite is a, a sample that's undergone um, magmatic differentiation because it's been heated, and the chondrules, which are the first kind of, um, some of the first blebs to uh, condense out of the uh, solar system as it was cooling, um, have been melted. Um, so um, the HEDs make up about 5 to 60% of all achondrites and about 5% of all of the world's meteorite falls, which are a, a group that have been actually observed to, to fall from the sky and then someone's picked them up within a few days. So um, there's less terrestrial weathering that could have potentially happened. Um, and they actually quite nicely form a, a, a series of kind of crustal and subcrustal with the diogenites being either kind of plutonic or um, mantle material um, with the uh, eucrites being the kind of crustal basaltic material and the howardites being a, um, a mechanical mixture, a breccia between the two, um, some of which is the actual surface regolith soil um, and we know this because of noble gas data and other bits are just, it's been smushed together. And the reason we know that it's from Vesta is because the reflectance spectra of uh, the eucrites um, in the lab looks very similar to the reflectance spectra of the asteroid for Vesta. And this was actually enough for NASA to send the Dawn space mission to Vesta first for a year to orbit and collect data and then move off to Ceres. Um, there's also uh, a small group of um, Vesta-like asteroids that are bridging the gap between Vesta itself and these Earth-crossing kind of orbits that would um, kick them out of the asteroid belt towards Earth eventually where they could land on Earth. Mm. And there's a huge impact crater in the um, south pole of um, Vesta where we believe actually nearly all of the samples came from this one huge event mm-hmm. that has then broken up um, and eventually come to earth in small pieces so is it, is it fair to think about vesta as a sort of a, a failed planet basically yeah it's the second largest third most massive 
uh, like asteroid in the um, main belt. I, I think it's after Pallas and um, another one. But it was discovered by William Olbers in 1876. That's from my thesis, that is. Like, I remember. <laughs> it's okay, we, we won't fact check. Slightly wrong. <laughs> ah, so um, have you been doing your postdoc work um, on a similar thing to your PhD work then? Yes, so um, it's the same isotope systems, hydrogen and chlorine, but rather than just getting uh, the, some of the first data, um, as there's only um, about two like, authors, myself included, that have kind of published work on this so far, um, uh, rather than just like getting data because it's new and interesting and what you can show us in relation to, say, the moon, I'm now looking specifically at whether meteorite impact shock, that kind of the force of a, a meteorite hitting the, the, the sample, could actually have affected the isotope composition that we're observing in our appetite. So I've taken um, eucrites that are relatively unshocked and then a whole series through like a little bit shocked, a little bit more, a little bit more to very shocked. And I'm now measuring the isotope compositions, but also looking at the crystal structure using a technique called electron backscatter diffraction, which basically allows you to look at the crystal plane and it's orientations and how if it's like bent or twisted so it's okay. correlating those two mm -hmm. so that so, can be your metric for how shocked something is yeah so um other people have done some of this work in the past so they've said oh yeah this this sample looks shocked because of maybe the types of minerals that are there some minerals only form in high shock environments um or the types of fractures there's there's kind of ways you can do it with like optical microscopy mm -hmm. but then i've come in and done this ebsd work to look at specific appetite grains looks at well the top part of this appetite grain is slightly more kind of deformed than the bottom part wouldn't it be interesting if i put a nanosim spot in the shocked part and a nanosim spot in the unshocked part do they have the same isotope composition yes no what does that tell us about the sample relative to a mm -hmm. uh, an appetite that has kind of a very homogeneous uniform crystal structure mm -hmm. uh, do they show variation between them mm -hmm. Is and that's what I'm writing up at the moment into a paper, actually. Um, yeah. I've been struggling with a figure for a day or so. It would be very useful for my work as well, because obviously the moon, you see so many craters on the surface of the moon, yeah. so it's undergone quite a lot of these meteorite impacts and quite a lot of shock. And it'd be quite interesting, especially in terms of studying lunar meteorites, to see whether what Tom finds is, does it, does it, alter the uh, isotopic composition or not um, and is that something that I need to be uh, accounting for in my results and others may need to account for in their results too. Yeah. I guess a, a lot of this depends on finding appetites that are big enough. Has that been quite challenging? How, how big are some of the uh, appetites that you see in lunar and, and, and eucrite samples? After you uh, tell. <laughs> uh, my ones are particularly small because I'm looking at samples that have been, they're brecciated so they're rocks that are composed of fragments of other rocks. So they have undergone shock. They have undergone a meteorite impact that's broken apart these rocks and then yeah. brought them back together. So any appetites that I find in them are, are quite, quite small. So they're <laughs> a couple of tens of microns, so sub-millimeter, well, all, most appetites are sub-millimeter, but um, tens of microns rather than hundreds of microns in size. Mm -hmm. So 
quite small, but that's the, the how great NanoSims is. That, that's so high precision and such a good spatial resolution on it that we can study things these small um, and get quite high precision data on it as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I got really excited when I found uh, an appetite grain that was, I think, 150 microns by like up 50 <laughs> microns. I was like, yes, that's so many analyses in one grain. <laughs> Again, typically... Um, my samples are about um, 20 by 20 and then trying to find a, a non-cracked area to put your, your nanosim spot can be quite challenging to find like a free area of say 5 by 5 or 10 yeah. by 10. Yeah. Um, and then cracks might appear during analysis as well that are because you're, below the surface. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean I guess talking of sort of cracks and stuff then, um, how much do you both have to worry about terrestrial contamination? Well, I do especially because I'm looking at lunar meteorites that have sat. I'm looking at both um, both types of deserts, so hot deserts and cold desert meteorites. So some meteorites that have sat in uh, the Saharan Desert and uh, others in Northwest Africa, um, and also Antarctic meteorites that have been sitting in Antarctica. And uh, the uh, interaction with these meteorites with water could significantly alter their water composition and perhaps their chlorine isotope composition. So it's something that I have to be very careful and mm -hmm. have to correct for in any uh, data that I get. Mm. So how do you check for that sort of thing? Are there, are there kind of like uh, chemical markers that would you know give you a hint that something had been altered or? Uh, well the isotopic composition of terrestrial water is quite quite significantly different to what you would um, typically see on the, the Apollo material that has not undergone this weathering process and not undergone this alteration. Um, so you can quite significantly see if something mm -hmm. has changed um, and you can back calculate for that. I guess that's really nice. You've got that sort of pristine set of ground truth samples ready to compare uh, yeah, these lunar meteorites to. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure Tom would appreciate for the <laughs> <best. laughs> Sample return to Vesta, please, if anyone from NASA is watching. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's Vesta um, <laughs> sample return isn't something that people really talk about, is it, I suppose? Is it? No, no, I, I, I'm going to make it my mission <laughs> when I'm kind of big, bigger in the community to start being like, you know what we should really do, guys? Like, Making Vesta <laughs> trendy again. <laughs> oh, yes. I can get hats printed and everything. <laughs> um, so uh, I have similar kind of um, concerns about terrestrial weathering. Um, I can again select to, to look at more at maybe meteorite falls that have been observed to fall, and then mm -hmm. there's mineral weather, min minimal weathering. Um, but I've got a, a selection of a few meteorite finds that have been again picked up in the desert. We don't know how long they've been there, um, and I have meteorite falls that have been observed, um, and I don't see a difference between their isotope composition, which is good. Mm -hmm. Also, um, there's a, a paper by um, uh, Roman Tartes, who's now at Manchester, um, who actually has the like a, a, a hydrogen isotope value for Saharan groundwater. So you can look at that and say, well, I can model how much of that groundwater could affect my sample. And I would notice I'd need, you know, do I need 20% groundwater to mess with my sample? And because we're talking about such low concentrations of water, it's even the smallest amount would change your isotope composition quite yeah. significantly. That's so we cool. can... When we, when we use the word fingerprint, 
you know, tracing the fingerprint of mm. different isotope systems and compositions, we really do mean just small traces of each. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh. Absolutely. Um, but you, I think you can also find for, at least for um, desert finds as well, there's, there, there are alteration minerals that you could see in your sample. So there's the um, like desert roses or like uh, halides and things mm -hmm. that would form. Yeah. And then you could be like, well, that sample's been very weathered. Yeah. Maybe take these results with a bit more uh, caution. Um, or, but again, if you cut into the middle and it looks like relatively unweathered, and you can then do as many checks and balances as you can to make sure your data is as kind of uh, high yeah. quality as possible, but you'll never totally get away with um, uh, from terrestrial contamination unless you were doing these uh, kind of analyses actually on the moon or sure. somewhere else where you've, you've, you, there's never been, uh, you know, any water from earth. Yeah. Because it's yeah. not interacting with our atmosphere or anything. Yeah. Mm. It's on the moon or another. But planet. even then, bringing you know the stuff to build anasims on the moon, however much I'd love that, <laughs> would bring contamination with it, and therefore uh, it would need to be fine. So it, there's always going to be a bit, but we, you, everyone tries their best to minimize it. Yeah. 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 So you you, you mentioned um, chlorine a bit. Then how how does that add to this story, or is this just another way of looking at the same problem, or is it different to uh, hydrogen isotopes? Well, chlorine is uh, another volatile element, but it is quite um, hydrophilic. So it tends to uh, its composition and its contents will reflect the uh, water patterns and what the water is doing. Yeah, it's, it's it's hydrophilic. It likes to track water, so um, and bond with with water. Um, but it's so fractionation whereby you you lose or gain one isotope relative to the other um, is based on mass difference and because hydrogen to deuterium um, one to two is the highest relative mass difference of anything um, of the elements it's it's the most significant mm. whereas the chlorine being 35 to 37 is a bit smaller mm. um, and it's another incompatible element um, that is important in magmatic processes by such as like lowering the liquidus temperature or um, other kind of effects that can affect what minerals form at what pressures or temperatures. Um, so it's, uh, and that's what most volatiles actually do in terms of melting um, or um, viscosity, rheology of the rock. Um, so it's, it's just another element that has similar kind of uh, effects on, on the on, on the kind of magma um, yeah. but it also can be used as a track for water as well yeah. and it's typically more abundant so there's lots of chlorine on Mars in chlorates and all the other um, kind of um, uh, minerals quite that a we, bit we see well. which means it's much easier to analyze because there's a lot more of it yeah um, yeah and I guess in terms of like looking at sources, I suppose, the more different chemical systems you can use to point towards a particular group of meteorites whatever yeah. that's delivering the water, that's yeah. got to be a good thing, I guess. So, yeah, if you're, if you're chlorine isotopes, your hydrogen isotopes, your, your noble gas data all point towards one thing, then it's far more likely that that is at least contributing the most. It might not be all of it, but it, it's probably the largest portion. 
So as much evidence as we can get to piece together the, the, the story, we, we will try and get. Yeah. If these um, samples can be um, affected by terrestrial processes fairly quickly after landing, um, do you have to be extra, extra careful with storing them so that they're, you know, not affected by any moisture in the air or, you know, from touching them? Yeah, definitely. We have to be, we have to wear PPA for, for, to protect the, the samples and especially the Apollo samples have to be kept in very specific conditions. And prior to our analysis, we actually put all put our uh, rock samples in an oven to drive off any uh, water that has absorbed onto the surface of the uh, rock so that what we measure when we put it into the nanosims is actually what's within that rock and not been contaminated at all. We try and minimize as much as possible any contamination we could bring in during the uh, storage yeah. and um, transference between storage and uh, analysis chamber. Yeah, so there's a, a good paper yeah, from 1993, I think it's Brennan et al, which is, looks at the diffusion rate of hydrogen in appetite at uh, like almost kind of ambient pressures and temperatures, and it's quite slow. So you might have, yeah, stuff like attached to the surface of your meteorite, um, which you use the, the vacuum oven to like bake off, um, but actually affecting the uh, sample itself it's it's going to take longer time scales right. um, and again you the first kind of part of the analysis when you're tuning the, the nanosims you're getting all of the detectors into the right place you're still sputtering material off the, the surface mm -hmm. so you, you've, you've kind of cleaned away first kind of few maybe nanometers of your sample um, before you actually start measuring so if there has been any sort of potential diffusion or other absorbed material that we haven't blasted off or baked out, um, you should polish it away with that kind of process. Mm -hmm. um, so what's next in both of your projects? Uh, obviously, there's quite a big hump in the road at the moment. Um, but, you know, how are you getting on working from home and what are you planning to do once lab work resumes? So at the moment, I'm working on writing up a thesis uh, stuff, writing up what I've done so far in the lab um, and making plans for what I can do once the labs are open again, once the labs are up and running. So I will, I've got more samples that um, I've got ready to put into uh, the nanosims to analyse um, and more that I'd like to uh, try and request access to to uh, study further. So that's uh, what I'm doing now and what I would like to focus on once we can get back in the lab. <laughs> In terms of what I'm going to be doing next, well, uh, actually my, my contract runs out uh, at the end of July, so I'm applying for jobs, writing grant proposals, and um, essentially wrapping up uh, the kind of two and a bit years work uh, in a couple of papers um, that I want to... My goal is to have them at least to co-authors before the lockdown is ended, if not have them submit, if not have at least one of them submitted to a, a journal, but we'll see how, see how that goes. Um, but yeah, it's kind of this, without the lab, very similar to my usual day at the moment, writing applications, writing grants, writing papers. Um, I don't think I'd actually be really going into the lab much more at the moment anyway, sadly. Um, well, if you don't have any other questions, we will ask you a final question, which we ask all of our guests, uh, which is if you could be doing something else completely, um, either inside academia or outside of it, 
what would you want to do? Oh, so I've I've said that I want to apply to be an astronaut at some point anyway. So I suppose apply to be an astronaut, be an astronaut instead. (laughs) That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, Yeah. that'd be very (laughs) cool. <laughs> you become an astronaut and you're like, you know what, guys, now I'm on the inside. Can we please go to Vesta? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's I just really think like it would be a great idea if we could just go to Vesta, you know. <laughs> I've got to I've got to start now and slowly work on it. I'll have to search you before you go on the on the rocket because you'll be there with like holding it like two nanoseconds just with you like, well, this is fine, this is essential, essential equipment. <laughs> my, my one luxury item, I'll just take a nanosins. <laughs> I think I'd quite like to just um, maybe learn some more as well, maybe do um, further study uh, in another area, maybe related, so perhaps uh, engineering or uh, rocketry to actually understand the other side, because I'd look mm-hmm. at rocks, I'd quite like to understand well, what got us to the moon in the first place and, you know, see mm. if I could, uh, yeah. you know, learn learn how to how that all works, because that's another cool side that I don't get to experience very much, um, studying rocks all the time and being in the lab all the time, or perhaps understanding, uh, learning to understand how um, the machines that I use uh, work, how they were built mm-hmm. more than I uh, you do as a user. I'd quite like to understand that so I could uh, maybe uh, develop techniques even more or maybe uh, identify even better techniques to uh, help us understand what we study even more in mm. the future. Kerbal Space Program is actually really good if you want to learn like <laughs> orbital dynamics and like basic kind of uh, rocketry and, and things. Uh, me and my housemate actually, uh, our, our lockdown project is we've started doing them like the actual like proper equations and trajectory working out for a, an Apollo style mission to the the moon in the game <laughs> fantastic um, well you'll have to live stream that uh, uh, yeah we, we've we've, we've <laughs> considered like we, we bought a new whiteboard just for it nice um, <laughs> excellent <laughs> jolly good but we'll put a link to twitch then uh, when so uh, when you all get when you get going yeah uh, fantastic. Well, thank you both very much uh, for coming on. That's been a, a great conversation. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, this whole uh, story of water in the solar system. So you'll have to keep us in touch of, uh, of, of how that develops. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's been a great yeah. experience. It's been really fun. Thank you. No worries. Yes, thank you very much. And for everybody listening, uh, thank you for listening. And if you want some more Earth and planetary science content, we're on social media everywhere from the Twitters to the Facebooks to the Instagrams at Earth Solar System. All the information will be in the episode description. Uh, But until next week, stay safe and we'll see you all very soon. Bye. Bye.